Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Leslie Temple Thurston. And actually, I'm her guest this week because I'm at her beautiful home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where uh, my wife and I came to visit her, her sister, and uh, so I decided to do a couple of interviews while I was in the area. Um, I've been aware of Leslie for quite a few years now. I'm on your email list, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, so I'm aware of, I've been aware of what she has been up to, and um, I also listened to an interview uh, recently that you did mm -hmm. with uh, Tammy Simon on Insights at the Edge. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard your story, uh, in fact, I remember this interview very well. I was doing yoga asanas in my driveway in the sunlight, <laughs> listening to an interview of you with Tammy Simon. I thought, what an inspiring and and fascinating story. I'd love to interview Leslie. Mm -hmm. So I put you on the list, and then when I discovered I was coming down this way, I thought, mm -hmm. uh, let's do it. So here we are. Um, Leslie divides her time between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Limpopo Province, uh, South Africa, and I'm sure she'll be telling us about that uh, during the interview. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Mm, it's wonderful to to be here with you. I'm honored that you wanted to come to Santa Fe and interview me. Mm. I don't do a lot of interviews. Actually, I'm quite reclusive, in fact, mm -hmm. um, except for the work that we do. We haven't um, become activists or anything like that, right. just in a certain way when we work. I suppose working with the black people of Africa is kind of an activism. Mm -hmm. So, and you work with animals also, yes. elephants and, and lions. And well, yes. we. Mm -hmm. Uh, we are supporters of an organization called the Global White Lion Protection Trust mm. because white lions are being used for canned hunting in South Africa and a very good friend of ours uh, named Linda Tucker has been drafted by Spirit to take care of these lions mm. and she has her own farm with her own lions uh, where they roam free but all around that area are farmers who are um, shooting, they're using white lines, they're breeding them and using them for canned hunting. Do you know what canned hunting is? No, is it like a, 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 the lions can't really get very far and the hunters just come in there and they're like sitting yes, ducks? Yes, the lions are released into a fenced area mm -hmm. and then the hunters, I guess, either walk if they want to or safely drive in jeeps until mm. they find them and they shoot them. Mm. And the, the, the farmers are making probably upwards of $40,000 a um, a trophy. Oh, I see. So there's so quite it's hard for them to resist. It's people from Europe and America that right. are coming and doing it, and mm. they they need the money in that area, so they you know they've succumbed. Yeah. And it feels just grossly cruel and awful. Yeah. yeah. And as far as the elephants go, the elephants of Africa are under siege. They're in trouble. Mm. They're wanting to cull them in South Africa. They say they're too many, hmm. but we're suspicious of that motive because it really doesn't seem as though they're too many. And in the rest of Africa, you know, they're, they're great open spaces that they migrate through are being closed off and mm -hmm. taken away. Right. So everywhere in Africa, these magnificent creatures are um, under threat. Hmm. And they're so intelligent. And so they're like whales. They're the whales of yeah. the land. They're extraordinary. And mm -hmm. so we're involved in doing what we can about that. Mm. Well, that's one thing that um, kind of inspired me about you is that you, know, you, you, you have this very profound spiritual dimension, which we'll be talking about. 
but you've kind of channeled that into uh, compassionate activism mm -hmm. for people and animals. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of times you don't see that. A lot of times it's kind of one way or the other. Um, I mean, I know people who are mo most probably spiritually awake uh, from when you, hear, when you hear a description of their experience. Mm -hmm. But they like listening to Rush Limbaugh, and they're very, very conservative. Really? Yeah, I know oh some people. There's one guy I interviewed. You can listen to his interview on, on you know, batgap.com. Uh, you know. That, but that's total illusion. How can you be awake and listen, other than just to get the drift of it? Like, well, it's a good question. It a you know, it's. I mean, it's a whole interesting <laughs> conundrum of spiritual people uh, who. <laughs> I mean, it's a whole chapter. I think that we could get into is the uh, dichotomy, if there is one, between kind of inner awareness and having that percolate into the personality in such a way as to make a person, you know, compassionate and uh, generous and, mm -hmm. and, you know, morally, uh, you know, upstanding mm -hmm. and so on. And, and, you know, very often great, even great famous spiritual teachers fall down in, in some of those respects. Um, they may have tremendous darshan and radiance and so on, but then you hear stories of them, you know, sleeping with their disciples and, you know, doing weird things with money and so on. So I find it inspiring and, and um, a nice example to set if, if someone walks their talk, mm. you know, and... Uh, I don't see much point in being awake if you don't use it for the betterment of humanity. I, that's just my perception. Yeah. I think my, my position, I was going to say my problem, but my position was that I grew up under apartheid in South Africa and I just saw too much of the upper class dominating the lower classes mm -hmm. and you know they're black people the lower classes right. it was horrifying to me even as a child i couldn't bear it mm -hmm. the the uh, 30 odd years that i lived there were torture it was so refreshing to come to the u.s i breathed freedom you know we had censorship and you couldn't say anything about the government mm. and people were put under house arrest and investigated it was awful and i went to a liberal university in johannesburg and so we were always so the campus was always being invaded and infiltrated and by we who? were always walking on the streets by, by the secret people? police oh, I yes, see. yes. Yeah. Yes, I remember people. watching that movie about mm. Stephen Biko. Uh, that was later. Yeah, that, oh. that, that, it, the whole thing erupted just before I left. Mm. And the reason we left was obviously Spirit's guidance, but um, my ex-husband got a, um, a, an appointment at UCLA. He was a doctor, mm. so we had already agreed to go when the whole thing erupted. Mm -hmm. But I, I realize now that um, my destiny was to not be there for when the actual revolution mm -hmm. hit um, the skids, in a way. Right. And I uh, was on my spiritual journey, and it wasn't that I was escaping, um, because I had been on my knees to my, um, to my guides who were communicating with me at that time, and saying, what can one person do? What can I do? I have to do something. And so they sent me to the U.S. <laughs> And it didn't make sense at first, but um, what happened was that I, I met a spiritual teacher and I, several spiritual mm -hmm. teachers, and I began my journey because they said, we'll show you what one person can do. Mm -hmm. And um, they took me through the whole journey uh, very fast over mm -hmm. the course of a few years. 
I had a cave experience where I was completely secluded mm. for about two years. And, um, and that during that time I did a lot of process work to help South Africa oh. because the revolution in, in 1986 and 7 was at its height. Right. And that's round about the time when people like Biko and others were being executed. Mm. So now that's a good little synopsis. Mm. Uh, that, but now let's go back to the beginning and unpack that whole thing and okay. go into the details oh, of every right. stage. Yes. Um, so maybe let's start, let's go way back. I mean, as a little girl, what, what was your first inkling of any sort of spiritual dimension or you know, interest in that sort of thing? Well, my grandparents had a farm way out in the bush that was really far away from everywhere. Um, actually sort of near the border of Botswana, it was very wild. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to get sent off there regularly during the school holidays or offloaded by my parents to mm -hmm. spend the, the three-week vacation with my grandparents. And my grandmother was a strangely reticent person who didn't really like me very much, I don't think. So she left me completely to my own devices. Mm. And so I would wander through the fields and through the bush hours and hours on my own, or else I'd go to the compound where the black people were and I would mm -hmm. hang out with them. Uh -huh. And I, there, were, there was no electricity there and no um, paved roads. And I was in the middle of Africa, and that's an energy field all of its own. Mm. And many years later, I realized that I was going into Samadhi as a child, mm. just wandering around on this farm with nobody to talk to and mm -hmm. being left alone. I didn't understand, but I liked it. I was in this sort of wildly expanded trans-Africa state huh. of consciousness. And then it was balanced out by my education and my life in the city. That's where it started. Huh. Because when I did finally break into Samadhi when I was older, I and my mind immediately, my whole awareness went back to Africa mm. and I was right there again. Yeah. So I understood that I'd been doing it as a child. Mm. And then of course during my teenage years, I just, I did what other teenagers did. Just became did. a wild and crazy teenager. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I always carried the banner for the black people of mm. Africa. Did you I get never, flack for doing that from your peers? No, my peers? parents were quite liberal. Uh -huh. they, they, didn't, um, they didn't mind at all. How about friends at school? Did you befriend black kids? I guess you weren't in the same school as you black know, kids. South you Africa is the uh -huh. home of apartheid. <laughs> yeah. So it was major segregation. Right. We lived in neighborhoods where everyone spoke English and the Afrikaners lived in a different part. Yeah. Mostly didn't live in Johannesburg. They had their mm. own city or cities. So there only more recently has there been a, a real intertwining of the, of the different um, races and nationalities. Mm. But everyone was separate. The, the English-speaking people were much more liberal mm -hmm. and the Afrikaners were the apartheid. They were the I architects yeah, of apartheid. Huh. And, and so the, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not pointing fingers. It oh, really was a complicated mess and it now is. they're trying to fix it. So, And it's a sort of a noble um, Attempt. Well, it, it seems like it turned out a lot better than it might have, you know. I mean, when Mandela came in, he was very um, forgiving. And, oh, and, oh, yes, it was a miracle that yeah. it wasn't a I mean, He could bar. have been a, a very bitter man you know, oh, after what he went through. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, he's a, he's a profound, unique being. Mm. 
and uh, he gave his, his gave his whole life for that. Right. And he um, he and you know people like Bishop Tutu and mm -hmm. so on really did uh, save the country. Yeah, I mean the two of them seem like these bright spiritual mm -hmm. lights, you mm -hmm. know. That rec Truth and Reconciliation Commission was mm -hmm. profound. Mm -hmm. I wish they'd kept it going a bit longer. Mm -hmm. But I suppose there was a dharma to that. The people, he, Mandela, when he stepped aside a few years ago, said, okay, now it's up to you. You, the people, I can't do any more for you. You have to mm -hmm. do this on your own. Mm -hmm. And they are making a pretty valiant attempt to get to know each other and, and live peacefully side by side. Yeah. After decades of hatred, that's really quite it is. something. This is a tangent, and perhaps we shouldn't go too far down it, but I often get the feeling that um, really great leaders who come to the fore in trying times had a sort of a destiny to do that. It's almost as if they were sent, you know, or assigned by some higher power mm -hmm. to be born at a certain time and mm -hmm. go through certain experiences oh, yes. in order to yes. arise on the, on the world stage Absolutely. when they're most needed. It's very, very clear. Like people like me. Abraham Lincoln or, yes. you know, different people like yes. that. Mandela, I'm sure, is um, an ascended master who mm. took an incarnation. In very well could be, yeah. Because we, what we've come to understand in the aftermath of the ending of apartheid is that South Africa is holding something very important for the world, mm. um, an attempt at reconciliation. Yeah and uh, mixing, racial mixing, and homogenizing themselves. I mean, if they can do it, then, yes. you know, anybody Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there are 11 different um, languages just amongst the black people. Mm. And then the whites and the, the speak two different languages. So they have um, several official, a lot of official languages. And uh, the people who've been kept separated for so long don't just naturally gravitate towards right. one another. Yeah. So it's taking effort. Yeah. Unfortunately, the World Bank has stepped in, and that just sounded a, an alarm bell for me when, mm. when I heard about that. So let's get back to you. Mm. Uh, so you survived your teenage years. Yes. And uh, <laughs> then, um, you know, coming out of that, which for me was a wild scene. But coming out of that, um, when did you first, uh, you know, kind of revisit your 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 spiritual nature? Mm. Yeah. I had there. Were, I remember two when I, two years when I turned thirteen, mm -hmm. I started getting downloads, mm. and I began to realize that I saw things differently from the way other people did. And then again, when I was 18, I got a whole surge of downloads as well about uh, transcendent experiences. Mm. And doors opened, and I started being capable of having transcendent experiences. Oh. Please um, um, elaborate on downloads, what you mean mm, by that, and what um, some of these downloads were, and how well, you, how you saw things differently. When I was 13, I felt... Um, I felt mystical alignments beginning to open in my awareness, mm -hmm. and I was uncomfortable. I, I you kind of knew them as such? You knew what yes, these were? Yes, I did. Yeah. I did. I knew that I could see things that other people couldn't see. Like what? Oh, I could, I could, like I could auras see. And things like yes, that. and yeah. I could see into them. Mm -hmm. I could see into what people, they were thinking. Yeah and what they were feeling, and I could read them very easily. And I, I had one girlfriend that I could share a little bit about that with. She, she was compassionate, but 
couldn't join me there. Yeah. And um, I, so I kept quiet about it. Did it kind of and spook I people became, if you said something? Yes, <laughs> I became quiet and serious. Yeah. And, um, and then again when I was 18, when I started university, mm -hmm. I, um, I had a whole period, it was probably astrological, but there mm -hmm. was a whole period where I, it, everything opened up again. It had closed up a little bit yeah. between 13 and 18, then it opened up again. And I went to the university in Johannesburg and studied fine art. That's where, what I was drawn to do. And I was good, it was the one thing I was good at. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything else very well, but I could paint right. and draw and so on. So I felt like that was my destiny mm -hmm. and I really got into it. Even after I graduated, I um, started painting a lot. And I had, I think, three exhibitions before we left South Africa. And when we left South Africa, I didn't realize it, but that was the end of my painting career. Ah. We arrived in Santa Monica, California, and um, I had to take care of two small kids. I didn't have a nanny to do that anymore, right. so my painting time was gone. Was and your I, painting a kind of a spiritual practice for you? Yes. I yeah. used to paint without copying things. I would just put a white canvas on the easel mm -hmm. and stand there and then intuit to take a certain color hmm. and just start doing this and it would become something. Were they abstract paintings or more uh, literal? They were a mixture, sort of semi-abstract uh -huh. and semi Like a, a landscape or something that would be kind of abstract. Mystical yeah. looking landscape, right. yeah. You didn't do that, did you? I did, Oh, yes, very nice. Yes. I, I, that's beautiful. It looks like an angel or something. Well, it's actually um, the etheric body and of some of the other bodies, mine. Of yours. Oh. Spirit made me paint it oh. when I um, was going through the awakening process uh -huh. so that I would remember. <laughs> wow. I would no, remember. I that that was what I looked like on another level. Huh. That was what they wanted me to do. And so as you were painting that, um, were you experiencing your etheric body that, yes, with that degree I of clarity? Yes, Well, they said to me, it took me six months to paint this because mm -hmm. I was out of practice. Mm -hmm. But my guide said to me, you, we, we don't want you to touch the painting unless you're in samadhi. Right. And so I was starting to go into samadhi. And sometimes there would be, you know, long, several week interludes between mm -hmm. each samadhi episode. And so I would add a little more. But I was going inside myself and then um, transferring what I saw inside myself mm -hmm. onto the canvas yeah. and the I, I the feeling level of that was accurately what I was experiencing yeah now I have a, mm -hmm. an, an understanding of what Samadhi means and probably most of our guests do but um, what do you mean by the word in terms of your experience well it's been different it's evolved over time mm -hmm. but back in those days it looked very much like the painting in that there was this light pouring out of my body, mm -hmm. white gold light. With your eyes open, closed, didn't matter? Exactly. Right. In fact, when they said I should paint the painting, I'd been sitting on the couch doing the samadhi for quite some time. Just sitting there experiencing yes, light pouring? hours. I mean, I spent two years sitting on the couch in meditation. That's what the cave experience uh -huh. was. And um, at some point they said, okay, now we want you to make a painting. I hadn't done one for years, so I went and got a canvas. And um, they said, now you're not to touch the painting unless you're in samadhi. Mm -hmm. So it took six months because there were intermittent samadhis. Right. But the reason I had to do that, one of the reasons, was because they wanted me to be able to 
hold the samadhi while I was in motion right. and focusing. So yeah. I wasn't sitting anymore. I right. was standing Doing. up in samadhi and moving my arms and, yeah. and thinking a little bit. Mm -hmm. Although it's a very intuitive process. There's not much thought happening when, when I paint. Right. When I used to paint, I didn't paint anymore. <laughs> now, um, you've alluded many times already to they, referring to guides. Yeah. So. Let's talk about that a little who bit. Who they were. Who they were, yeah. how you experienced them. It was them, absolutely so everyone that, and when you that know started the name also. of. Yes. Yeah. During the course of that two years, I was taught by everybody. Okay, now wait a minute. So the two years the cave of experience. cave experience, yes. was that like that before you got married when you were still? No, 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 oh, no. Later on. That was long after my divorce and after okay. all many years of spiritual practice. Uh -huh. It was between 86 and 88. Okay. And I, I guess I'd sort of reached the climax. So I was drafted into a small apartment mm -hmm. in West LA, which is a an area I'd never lived before, mm -hmm. um, where I knew absolutely nobody. And gradually, um, my, the beings that were tutoring me um, telepathically mm -hmm. um, led me into going out of the house less and less and less mm -hmm. until I was really housebound. Yeah. And then they started working with me. And I went through the dissolution of my entire ego, including all the negative stuff at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I would lie in bed or on the floor, you know, weeping or mm. it doesn't sound just very... Just experiencing all just this. Just letting it all pass through. Yeah, catharsis stuff yeah. going on. And this was the latter end of it because mm. as the human imprint of the ego dissolved, so the samadhi started to come through. Mm. And so the training then shifted. But I was going at one point seesawing between high, high luminous samadhis and then diving down into the muck again. Mm. And this would be like a, a week-long cycle. I wonder if someone, you know, more mundanely oriented would have just said you had manic depression or something. Oh, absolutely. I was Maybe completely you did isolated. Um, nobody came near me. Mm. I, nobody knew where I was. Well, actually my family. Mm -hmm. But they had moved to Phoenix, so nobody was knocking on my door. Right. I was really, all my friends had somehow vanished mm -hmm. and there, nobody knew where I was. I was completely mm -hmm. incognito, locked up in this apartment. Huh. So when you say these guides were communicating with you telepathically, was that like a voice in your head yes. or more subtle? Was there a visual component where you could actually see what they looked like or was it more like just a voice coming saying something? It was like? telepathic, tell, um, at least um, clear audience. Yeah, I was hearing it. Would in they my sound head. like a human voice with different, like as uh, with a particular accent, sometimes, for instance, um, and different voices, man's voice, no woman's accents, voice, or no accents, <laughs> different genders, or just somehow in different, your... uh, mostly masculine uh -huh. guides, but occasionally, I I had a many month experience of the Divine Mother mm. working with me, but that came right at the end. They were ascended masters. Sometimes they told me their names. Sometimes. Mm. They didn't. And you would know they were an ascended master because they would say, I'm an ascended I'm master and my name I'm is Babaji. so Babaji. I'm, you know, I'm Ramana Maharshi. Ah. Um, I've, Ramana Maharshi showed up one day and he said, I've come to teach you for about six months hmm. and you need to do what I ask you to do, uh -huh. which I did. Interesting. And um, that, he was one of the last. I started going to yeah. Samadhi at the end of that. But Babaji was one of them. Yogananda at one time. Mm -hmm. 
a whole slew of ascended masters from um, um, Archangel Michael, several Archangels, but Archangel Michael was a very prevalent um, guide. And, um, oh, gosh, I'm spacing on and the were, name um, of some of the others. Were they all people? Or, Sometimes or they didn't have names, and I would mm. ask them, they said, you don't know who we are. And we don't feel that you need to know. We don't feel the need to speak about it. So that's kind of that kind of answers the question I was going to ask, which was, you know, were they just masters that we all may have read about in books, or were they just somehow out of the blue something that no they, one's ever heard of? It was both. It was almost yeah. everybody um, mm -hmm. you, that you've read about in books mm -hmm. and more beings that um, nobody's, you know, ascended masters and then with no names. Yeah. At least they didn't tell me. Um, they were so compassionate and so loving and so always there and it was 24, hour, 24 hours a day mm. that I was in this transmission that came through. Mm. And so I didn't um, mind being alone. I wasn't really alone. You weren't alone. <laughs> Plenty of company. Mm. Sometimes when I hear people talk about you know these things. I, I'm skeptical, but uh, for some reason with you, I, I don't feel skeptical. It was you know, so some people real. use it as a sort of an ego boost thing. Oh yes, I am speaking with the Archangel Michael, and mm. he's telling me to tell mm. you this, and oh. it seems a little hokey. Mm. But in your case, you know. Uh, no, Archangel Michael put me on a three-week fast huh? and wouldn't let me sleep. Hmm. I had to sit cross-legged in front of my altar mm -hmm. for three weeks. Well, I got during the day. I, right was actually in computer programming school, but every night for three uh, weeks, I didn't sleep a wink and he coached me. And that's when my heart opened after uh, the end of those three weeks. I didn't eat or sleep for those three weeks. So you actually came out of the apartment, went to a computer programming school? Yes, and then set up, when I came back. And then came back and meditated all night. With him. Huh. He With was literally guiding. no sleep for three no weeks. No sleep, for, no food, no, and food. no sleep. How did you feel during the day when you were Just back? Just fine. At, you didn't feel hungry or tired yeah, or anything. Because I was being fed this yeah. energy. Amazing. Yeah. I feel like I'm missing a lot here because <laughs> there must have been so many interesting, you know, particular things like that. Mm -hmm. That um, I mean, if if you were communicating with all these different people, perhaps don't let don't let us miss kind of the highlights of. You know, of all the, the... Well, I can share something. Yeah, please, as much as you... At the end of those three... <clears throat> I was sitting in a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado, mm -hmm. eating lunch, <clears throat> and Archangel Michael, the voice came in and said, I am the Archangel Michael, and I've come to teach you. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to? Something like that. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, stop eating. And I had this delicious bowl of shrimp right in front mm -hmm. of me that the waitress had just put in front of me. So I pushed it aside, and that was the beginning. I had no idea that it would last three weeks, and I had no idea what was going to happen, mm -hmm. but I just trusted him. So I went to school every day, and I came home. You were living in Boulder then? In Boulder, I yes. See. I came home, and um, I was living alone. I came home and was guided to sit down in front of my altar and meditate. Mm -hmm. And the first night was a bit shocking because it was the whole night and, mm -hmm. you know, no sleep. Did your legs get tired sitting in? Oh, oh, that was part of the whole thing. My legs ached and my back ached and it was agony. Yeah. And it went on for hours and I just but sat there But you really felt cried. like you shouldn't get up? No. He had said he was going to teach me. Yeah. And so I stuck it out mm -hmm. and I didn't um, get up. But what 
happened was I just cried a lot because hmm. the pain was unbearable. Hmm. And as I cried, my shadow started peeling off. He was peeling the shadow off. Uh -huh. And um, it went on for three weeks. I didn't know that it would go on for three so weeks. So pain all night for three yes. weeks. But then there, after a few days of that, there was a night where I was just in samadhi bliss mm -hmm. and there was no pain and it, the whole night felt like five minutes. Mm. Whereas the painful nights just seemed like hours and hours right. of misery <clears throat> that dragged on. Mm. And um, I didn't know it would end at the three-week mark, but I hung in with it. Yeah. He, I used to jog, so I stopped jogging and he said, no, go, go, go and jog. Mm -hmm. You'll see, you'll be able to do it. Mm. And I did, I was able to jog my three miles. It must have been good for your legs after all that sitting. Uh, <laughs> the pain would go away instantly and mm. it would arrive instantly. Mm. It was like the pain was being done to me. Mm. And just the crying um, was a healing. Mm -hmm. At the end of the three weeks, my heart opened mm -hmm. at, to a much deeper level than it was. I mean, I was still very third dimensional at that point, but my heart opened into a higher dimensional state to mm -hmm. the point where it never closed again. And I, I, he said to me at the end, he said, this is heaven's gate. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I can vouch for that being true. I had a whole different viewpoint, a whole different perspective on life at that point. I saw people differently. I felt different in mm. myself. I. Um, How did you see people differently? I what could, are what are I some of the characteristics of this? Heart I could see <clears throat> their whole. I could see their whole egoic configuration mm -hmm. and who they were beyond that. I mean, it was like everything became transparent. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've just, never Would you have to that. sort of really zoom in on a person to see that? Or could you just like, no. at the cash register, you, you see the whole picture of no, it? No, I, I didn't use it that way. Uh, These are people I knew. Right. We were all in computer programming school together. <laughs> and they, they, I, they were acquaintances, not yeah. really close friends, but because I had lunch with them at times and right. I spent time with them. To be interacting, I, I could see, yes, yeah. I could see where they were wounded and where they were blocking the light and where they were in pain and so on. <clears throat> Did you find yourself beginning to help them at that point? In whatever small way I could without seeing, seeming to without be. imposing. It was really just um, showing compassion Yeah. when people seemed to be suffering. There were times when I said, I see that you're in trouble, can mm -hmm. I help you, or something like that. Yeah. You know? And then if they were really ripe, they would let me. Mm -hmm. But it was just a way of being there for people, and yeah. I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to create the wrong impression, let's say right. that. And I just felt I need to be humble yeah. rather than anything else. I have a friend who, uh, whom I interviewed earlier in this series who, you know, I don't know if this is still going on, but she went through a phase where if she was on, on the phone with a help desk at some co company mm. or something like mm. that, she'd just hear a few words from the person's voice and she'd start getting all this information. Oh, they went through a divorce mm -hmm. and they have three mm -hmm. kids and, you know, mm -hmm. all these details of their lives mm -hmm. just from the sound of their voice. Mm. I sometimes get that kind of information, but really only if it's pertinent right. to what the person's trying to clear in themselves, mm. you know, what they, or where their main um, hitch is yeah. that's hanging up their, um, their lives. Mm. So yeah, it it gets quite transparent. So it sounds like your cave period happened in both LA and Boulder. 
Is that so? Um, the cave experience in LA came after the boulder experience. Okay, I'm getting mixed the up. The heart opened and then I was sent off to the cave experience. I, I was literally sent from boulder to LA. Okay. So as soon as I finished my computer programming uh -huh. course. Which you probably never did anything with. <laughs> no, but you know, I saw why I was doing it at uh -huh. some point. And that's why the Samadhis started, was because um, as, a, as a, an artist, I'd been very right-brained. Mm. And the computer programming balanced out yeah. the left brain and the right brain. I see. And as soon as I started to get some mastery in the computer programming, that's when Archangel Michael showed up, and that's when I went through those three mm -hmm. weeks, and that's when the samadhi would begin at night. Mm -hmm. I would, well, I, even after he left, I continued to sit in meditation all weekend and during my spare time. Mm -hmm and often at night as well, and the samadhi started to come in at that mm. time. So it developed over the course of quite a while, and then, you know, they sent me to LA at the end of the programming course. Yes, they. <laughs> they, my telepathic teachers. Had they sent you to be do the computer programming in the first place? Yes. Right. Oh, I, I struggled not to do it. Uh. I mean, they asked a few times, and I would just go, no. I'm not going to do that. That's I don't have a mind for that. Mm -hmm. I'm not that kind of person, you know. But finally, somehow they cornered me. I can't quite remember yeah. how they did that, but they got me Sign there. here. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if a lot of people have guides mm -hmm. sort of whispering in the ear like this. They do. And Everyone they don't know does. it. Absolutely. Right. Or yes. they just think it's some thought that's, you know, some random thing going through. They do. Through. Everybody does. Huh. They, Is it always um, the big guys talking to them? Or, or do, no, are there, like, there are different levels, levels of guides. I graduated from various beings to yeah. other various beings. So yeah. when you started out having guides, talking to you, it was more sort of smaller, lower level, so to speak, in the hierarchy? I, well, there was a, there was a variety, because mm. sometimes a really um, profound being would show up and I would get a real boost and move forward, mm -hmm. and then there would be um, a team that would come, up, come in to try and mm. hold me at that level. They mm -hmm. would keep working with me to hold me at that level, and then when that level became established, and I had a little, maybe a bit of a respite in between where mm -hmm. nobody showed up at all. Mm -hmm. But I was very committed to my meditation. I did yeah. that every day. So, but then someone else would show up and, you know, it was, it was a series of jumps that I was given. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, I've been meditating for 42 years mm -hmm. and uh, I've always, I've never thought of it so much in terms of you know, some other entity of some kind intermediating or helping me, mm. although I imagine that must be going on in some way. I've, al oh. I've always just thought of it as <laughs> this process I go through where my mind settles down, I get mm. into this nice deep state mm. and, and come out again. But, um, you know, you're well, kind of I, giving... I had asked for enlightenment. I don't know that everybody does that. Mm -hmm. I had asked for that. And I said, I, I had stated, I'll do anything to have that state. Right. And I, I mean, I gave up many things that were deeply important to me mm -hmm. in order, and became a very solitary being, living completely at the whim of these guides. Yeah. You know, get in your car and drive to such and such. I would huh. do it. Wow. Yeah. Huh. I was just listening to uh, a Sufi teacher, Llewellyn Von Lee, as I was driving up here in the car, and uh, he was talking about how, you know, these higher beings, they don't have the dense bodies that we have. 
And so they kind of need us in a way to mm -hmm. be uh, intermediator, interme intermediaries <laughs> uh, here on earth in order to you know, help to bring light into the world mm -hmm. and so on. So it's kind of this collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. And uh, I imagine that you know, when someone shows a willingness to cooperate, Oh, it makes them so happy. Yeah, then they say, okay, here we go. Here's yes. somebody we can work with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You get a lot of attention when you are um, available like that. Yeah. But, I mean, a lot of people would probably listen to what you're saying and think, I'd love to have that going on in my life, but I seem to be kind of a lunkhead, you know. I, I don't, I'm sort of, I don't, I'm not in tune with guides. I mean, you know, I'm doing my yoga and I'm doing my meditation, but I seem stuck and I'm not making very much progress. And how could I have what Leslie is talking about? Well, you know, it's really, I, I suppose I had a destiny, but I, I'm not sure of that. Mm -hmm. I was very gung ho. Mm -hmm. I had, I've always had this activist heart. I wanted to see the world benefit, to see people benefit, and I was willing to make sacrifices. Mm -hmm to sacrifice all kinds of things to do that and um, so I'm not sure that I was special I just had a, a I had seen so much suffering yeah that I just wasn't complacent and I was willing to say okay um, I'm going to do what I can do to mitigate the suffering not um, wait for somebody else to do it or I'd seen the need, you mm -hmm. know, that's a big piece of it. I'd really seen the need for compassion in the world. I'd seen such horrific things. So to a great extent, <clears throat> your, your motivation for enlightenment was not what's in it for me. I want to just experience all this bliss. It was, oh, you know, no. enlightenment will enable me <laughs> to be a more useful mm -hmm. servant of, mm -hmm. of God. I had no idea that it was bliss, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. I wanted to serve. Yeah, and you felt like in, you, your understanding was that enlightenment would be the tool or the, yes. the, 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 the attainment no, that, that would it, enable you to it serve. It wasn't my understanding. Oh. Remember I had said, I'll do whatever it takes, uh -huh. and my guides had sent me to the U.S. Oh, I see. And I'd been meditating before, mm -hmm. in, for a year or two just in kind South of on Africa. Your own, just doing it. I, I learned TM and I oh, did it on TM. my own. Okay. Yeah. It was the only meditation that was available well, in South that, Africa. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my beginning. TM mm -hmm. was the beginning. Did you have a good experience with that? Oh, yes. Yeah. I had lovely meditations. In fact, it changed my life. I, my my whole perspective on everything mm -hmm. changed and Peter uh, Swan remember him? South Africa t oh, TM no. teacher oh, anyway go really? ahead I'm sorry no, the, um, the, one, the one that I studied with was different I'm, yeah. I'm spacing on his name right now uh, it doesn't matter um, it was very important for me mm. I, I started experiencing transcendence very quickly with TM yeah yeah. And so I knew this, it was the only thing I wanted to do at a certain point, and mm -hmm. I didn't want the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. It took a while because I had two children at that point, and mm -hmm. it took a while for um, my husband and I to sort out, you know, what was brewing between us. Mm -hmm. And finally we separated. Mm -hmm. And after about a year, I was I was asked by my guides to let my children go with him, mm. and that was when I moved into the um, towards the cave experience, uh -huh. which I couldn't have that done. That must have been. Boy, talk about sacrifices. That yeah. was a big one, yeah. and the art. I sacrificed yeah. the art. Huh. They stopped me from painting at a certain point, and 
they mitigated the separation from my children in amazing ways. Um, I had a, a strong energetic connection to them. To the children? Yes. yes. So you didn't feel so separated? No. Right. And they, we, you know, we talked on the phone. They were the only ones who ever got through mm -hmm. on the telephone during the cave experience. Uh -huh. um, for Everybody else, the phone was kind of broken. It didn't always work. How are they doing now? They're doing fine. Good. Mm -hmm. Have they, uh, this could be tangential, but we'll be, have they uh, gotten bitten by the spiritual bug themselves? Or? My daughter is to a certain extent, but in a different kind of way. She's mm -hmm. going the academic route. Mm -hmm. She's doing a PhD right now. Yeah. Not my son, no. He's more like his father. Mm. But no, they have lives. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you did TM for a couple of years, and and in South Africa, mm -hmm. and then you were called to move to the U.S. You moved to the U.S. with your husband, did you? Yes, not? and yeah. my children, all yeah. four of us. So, did you feel like the guides were instrumental in getting the whole family? Oh, over? absolutely. But the husband didn't. Uh, I mean, did you talk to him in those well, terms? You said, "Hey, that, hey, uh, honey, we, the guides say we're moving to L.A." <laughs> um, they arranged it. What happened was that he. Um, he was he had just trained as an orthopedic surgeon mm -hmm. and um, lo and behold the university the professor his professor at the university was contacted by the professor of orthopedics at UCLA um, looking for a research fellow to come and do a two-year stint mm -hmm. and the the professor in at the university in Johannesburg just went straight to my husband and said this is for you mm -hmm. So um, he he t he took it. But from your perspective, that was orchestrated. Well, I didn't realize at the time. Uh -huh. I d I, d I wasn't that connected to guides that much during those days. Mm -hmm. Not until I actually began a serious spiritual journey mm. um, did they start really running my life. Right. Which I let them do. Yeah. But so, they asked me to let my children go with my uh, husband when we got to that point. Yeah. So, um, two years in South Africa meditating, then moved to, to UCLA, mm -hmm. still, family still together, mm -hmm. and um, then at some stage of the game there, the, the serious spiritual journey began yes. to kick in. Was yes. that sort of like simultaneous with or subsequent to your, your marriage beginning to break up? It was simultaneous. Simultaneous. So that yes. it's like the spiritual engines were revving up yes. and, and that was making it more and more difficult to, to maintain the, mm -hmm. the status quo that you had mm -hmm. been living. There's a, another way that I look at it now because it's, it's, it's happened many times that I was um, evolving at a much faster rate than he was right. and his life is very much the same as it always was yeah. now. And I was on a very different trajectory, mm -hmm. and so it was inevitable that we would move apart because he wanted stability and to stay the same, and I was already um, in motion. Right. And there was no way I was going to to stop that. Uh, At times, did you try to sort of sublimate your spiritual motivations to um, you know to keep the marriage? together or were you, I, did you have a hard I, I time compromising like that? I 
did a little bit, yeah. but really not with any gusto. Or so there's such a force to your evolutionary drive that yes. you really couldn't. Well, at first I thought I could be married and a mother and do a spiritual path, yeah. and then it became clearer that I couldn't. It works for some people. Yes, it does. Yeah. Well, you know, I was waiting for him to move with me, right? And he didn't. He didn't come, and he didn't come, and I finally thought, I'm going on my own now. Yeah. I have to. I have to go on yeah. my own. And There's so a Bengali I, saying, if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. Yes, <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah. It was painful. It was heartbreaking, actually. Mm. Um, but but you, I, felt, you felt confident that you were doing the right thing. It was sort of like... It was all intuitive. Yeah, I was yeah. never that confident, but I just... Trusted your intuition. I did. I did. I, I guess I could feel that I had to, yeah. that I had no choice. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, I had no idea where I was going, Right. but I was, at, you know, by the time you've let go of your career, your husband and your children, mm. you, uh, you don't have a lot holding you, and I, I was just ready for takeoff at that point. How old were you at that stage, if you don't mind my asking? Um, the whole, he and I separated when I was about 30. I guess. Okay. So, and I woke up when I was 42, so it was that period uh, in there. You, you reached this stage at which the, the sort of the, you were reaching escape velocity because of the spiritual urge that was mm. welling up within you or mm. that you were also receiving from your guides. And uh, then you, you said something about a six year period before the, the cave period started, is that right? That was when I, I studied with two spiritual teachers okay. for about four years. Is that worth talking about? Um, I mean, I'm sure it is, it's probably, what did you go through? Oh, I, the, the one was a, a, a woman, a Jungian, uh -huh. and uh, she introduced me to the notion of shadow. Oh, so it is important to yeah. talk about that. She made it very clear to me, and I, I, I knew she was speaking the truth, mm -hmm. that if you don't deal with your uh, negative ego, mm -hmm. which is your shadow stuff, um, you can't wake up. You can't really go into, you can't dissolve the ego unless you deal with the, the, the stuff that's down there. Mm -hmm. And that made perfect sense to me. I knew she was speaking the truth. So. She was very clear. You can't just go into the light all the time. Mm. You're, you're not. That's just the upper reaches of the ego when you do that. If it's a person sort of tries to do hells. that, what happens to them? They just get D stuck. Does the they negative stuff sort of keep jumping out? It does. At inconvenient it does. times. It does. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. there are people who can use their wills and stay um, mm. above it. They don't right. keep it bottled keep up. Keep it bottled up. Yeah. And. Um, <clears throat> So, for whatever reason, I, I chose to believe her, and uh, for four years she worked one-on-one -on -one with me, mm -hmm. dissolving um, all of my programming. You know, we in a sort of a therapeutic uh, setting. Yes, a one-on-one -on -one talking. Talking. Oh, yeah. um, she was a seer, though she could oh. see. Okay, you've got this program, uh -huh. and you you know it's now up on it's up at the top of the list mm. for you to dissolve. So we would dialogue about this particular behavior or ego program, and then. Um, I would surrender it, and, and then it would go away. Mm. And we did a lot of that. Mm. 
and it probably was not totally smooth as silk, surrendering all this stuff. No. I mean, you must have been going through a lot of purging well, of... This was right as my marriage was breaking right. up, that when I met her. Mm -hmm. And so I was really ripe and ready. At this point, I had let go. We just hadn't quite separated, but we were living very separate lives mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and so I was fairly distraught. It wasn't a very cool experience having a marriage breakup. It was yeah, hard. Yeah. And I was distraught and a bit confused and so on. And, but as though I was being carried along by the current in a river, actually. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she was there. And, um, and I started to see all the places where I was locked in and stuck and so on. And it became quite consuming. And then um, it was um, shortly after, or maybe a f six months after I'd been working with her, that I, I met uh, Rama mm -hmm. and started mm -hmm. sitting at his weekly meditation sessions, and um, <coughs> which I did for give or take th four years, I think. Mm -hmm. Although um, the, fi the fourth year, I still considered myself to be students of both of them, mm -hmm. but they were. Were you still seeing the woman? Um, well, periodically. Periodically, yeah. she lived in LA, and Rama at that point lived in Boston, and oh. I lived in Boulder. So <laughs> as that was Not very when, handy. Yes, so I was. I still believed that I was affiliated to them, but in actuality, my inner guides were weaning me yeah. away from them and moving me into this sort of full-time telepathic um, tutoring that they were giving me. How could so, you do weekly meditations with Rama if you were in Boulder and he was in Boston when you flying to Boston? Well, that was we? before we all left L.A. Oh, okay. Yes. So in other words, Rama was in L.A. at that At point. that time, and then he went to Boston and I was in Boulder. I see. Um, so it it wasn't it was just in my mind that I studied with him for mm. four years. The actual experience was probably more like three. I have a friend who was really into Rama, and he said that he actually saw him levitate and stuff like uh, that. Did you see that anything? Yes, like? we used to go out into the desert, yeah. and he would do stuff. I watched him disappear. He was sitting on a rock uh -huh. in front of me, and I watched him just dematerialize. And you could see stuff behind him that yes, had been there. Yes, the rock that was behind yeah. him. And yeah. levitating. I didn't see the levitating, uh -huh. no. Interesting. But and I'm everybody saying. in the audience saw it? It wasn't just... Not everybody, many people. So it sort of depended upon your receptivity to see I that? I think so. I think the mind gets in the way and just disbelieves. Mm. Yeah. But... Um, huh. Interesting story, that whole mm, guy. But that's a whole mm, other story. Mm, and he's not around to interview anymore. <laughs> no, he's not. He's yeah. an interesting person. Yeah. But as I said, I didn't... Um, I didn't study there with him for more for very than long. three years. So you were shifting kind of into not having a human teacher, but just having, you yes, know, this telepathic thing. That was the direction that it went. And yeah. Eventually I had no human teacher. Yeah. And so that's when you began to enter your cave period in, yes. in Boulder. Yes. That three-week period in Boulder was right. obviously a preparation right. because my heart was open at that point, and I was very, very receptive. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was put into seclusion. Yeah. And in that um, apartment that I called my cave, it was very much like a cave, actually, yeah. the apartment itself, um, sort of dark and um, cave-like. Mm -hmm. But um, and at the end of that, I had. I had a number of breakthrough experiences. In the three weeks? No. In, in the two the, years? the two years. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear about those. 
Well, there were stages, once again, like the period with Archangel Michael, mm -hmm. when I sat on the, the floor and meditated all night. Um, that was a stage. That was a significant stage. It had a beginning, a middle, and an ending, mm -hmm. with an outcome where a significant change had taken place. <clears throat> and once and the then, change had taken place, it was sort of like a permanent shift. Yes. Oh, I was up a, to that I was point, a yeah. different person yeah. after that. And so my the whole world reality, with new eyes. Yeah, yeah. My whole reality had changed. And then it would change again. And, and then, then again. Exactly. Right. So the whole cave experience was a series of those shifts mm -hmm. that ignited or initiated a different perception and consciousness. And I finally figured out that I was actually shifting dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not all of them were dimensions. Dimensions shifts. of consciousness? Yes. Right. Mm. I'm glad you're saying this because a lot of people have a shift and it'll be very profound mm -hmm. and they'll think, that's it, I'm done, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm enlightened. Mm -hmm. And my notion, my sense of things is that there are many, many such oh, shifts yes. to go through oh, and there may, no, there may be no end to it as far mm -hmm. as I know. Mm -hmm. um, there are significant milestones. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's an end to no. it, because I'm still working and shifting, yeah. working on myself. And, and I don't know anybody who isn't, and I, you know. That's how I, I, especially now, and it's, it's possible that, you know, a couple hundred years ago when the world was moving more slowly, the vibration was slower, that there was a sense of um, reaching a goal, mm -hmm. but w this whole planet is in accelerated evolution right now. And so people who are actually doing a, a spiritual evolutionary journey by choice are moving by leaps and bounds, and this is the great opportunity to do that. Yeah. So, no, I would never try to put a ceiling on anything. So, I, I kind of distracted you a little bit, but you were saying during those two years there were there was a number of significant milestones. There were significant doorways right. that led to a whole new level of consciousness. Mm. Perhaps and you could just sort of sketch out each of one of the more significant ones briefly, or, well, or not briefly if you want to the elaborate. One, <laughs> the one where we discussed the making of this painting uh -huh. was a very significant one, mm. because I started going into samadhi, and I had been having samadhi sitting on the couch, but I had to keep very still, stop my mind, and hold the meditation in order for that to come through. Mm -hmm. and then. Um, so the, the painting was significant because I got up, they wanted me to be able to walk around and move and be functional yeah. um, and hold the samadhi at the same time. And their rationale was, well, painting is something you know how to do, so we think that you'll be able hmm. to do this. As opposed to fixing an engine or something. Right, <laughs> yes, yes, where I had to engage my mind, yeah. you know. The painting was very intuitively spontaneous. And so by samadhi in this, in this instance, do you mean sort of a, a slip, settling into a state of unbounded awareness yes. with very with no very thought, little or no thought? Heightened perception. Heightened perception and, and, yeah, and being and able to maintain that while painting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that was a, a that was a tutoring that had um, an outcome, and um, gosh, there were others I can't quite remember. I can't bring mm -hmm. them back right now. So maybe we should move on. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, shall we move on to the end of the two years? Oh yes, at the end of the two yeah. years, that was the most significant okay. one of all. Yeah. At the end of the two years. I didn't know it was the end of the two I years. I figured there must be it? something special at the end of the two years, yes. or otherwise it oh, might no, have been three years or four years. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Um, I had gone through a, a period of shadow that was fairly um, regular, but 
um, one day I was sort of sitting on the couch, which I did most of the time, and um, I was feeling sort of strange. I couldn't really define it, but um, um, I suddenly, I had a vision, and this was very clear even with my eyes open, that um, uh, a lot of arms materialized, it sounds so bizarre, but these arms with hands came down in front of me and grabbed me. <laughs> and um, I felt myself being lifted up. <laughs> and, um, and then I don't remember anything. I, I w went, I don't know, I only found out what happened later under hypnosis. But I was gone for three days. Really? Um, I on, came, on the, your body was on the couch? I don't know oh. where my body was. Okay. I came to uh -huh. um, on the couch in the same, you know, position. lotus position and um, was very disoriented. And you looked at a, a, a watch well, or something to figure out that it had been three no, days? No, unfortunately I had a I had a subscription to the LA Times, mm -hmm. and when I opened my front door, I mean, I was sort of bumbling around in this sort of dazed state huh. when I got off the couch. I opened my front door, and there was a little pile of newspapers there. So, See how many days had elapsed. Yeah, so I knew how many days had yeah. elapsed, yeah. but I was gone. Huh. And the thing that was most noticeable at the end of that was my state of consciousness that I, I, was, I knew I was in a nerviculpa samadhi at that point. And Better define that for people. I don't know if I can. I mean, it's Meaning a it didn't vast right. transcendental state right. that didn't ever go away. I'd had those high samadhis before, but then they would subside and I would plunge into the shadow again. Yeah. But this stayed. I didn't go down into the shadow anymore. I just stayed in the state. Of course, initially you probably didn't know that you were going to stay in that state. You might have figured that you were going to drop down, but then... I did. That's why I didn't tell anybody. Right. I didn't go out and say... But then days passed and you weren't I'm dropping finished. down. <laughs> the days went months. Yeah. Months. Actually, I didn't tell anybody for mm -hmm. two years because I wanted to be absolutely certain. Did you have um, friends that you could talk to this stuff about? I mean, did people know what you were going through all this time? No. You were just on your own. <laughs> I, I finally, I waited two years that I wrote my ex-husband a letter and mm -hmm. told him, because he knew what I was trying to do. He didn't really approve of it, but he, he actually paid my rent, so oh, that's he nice. was supporting me. Yeah. Did he think that, well, again, I, I feel like I'm getting tangential here, but I'm curious, did he think that there was any legitimacy to what you were striving for, or did he just think you were, you were nutty? No, I think he, over the course of all the years that, that I'd been meditating uh -huh. and sort of... Um, asserting my independence around this, uh, that he he kind of half believed it. Yeah. And, um, he was clear it wasn't for him, but he was right. willing to. And you weren't doing anything crazy. No, I wasn't you were, doing you were, anything crazy. You were, he saw that I was yeah. serious. I think uh, he may have thought I was a bit you weren't shaving your barking head. up the wrong tree <laughs> or something, you know, right. but um, he was willing to humor me, I okay. guess. Well, that's very nice. So I waited two years before I ever told anybody yeah. anything. But um, the the whole the seclusion started breaking up at that right. point, and um, people started coming into my life. Mm -hmm. Like there were several people who lived in the building, with the block of uh, apartments <laughs> that I lived in, 
who came and knocked on my door and said, we've heard that you teach meditation. Will you teach us meditation? Yeah. And so um, that was sort of a coming out thing. Yeah. And then um, I, I met a couple of other people at some kind of festival, some mm -hmm. kind of whole earth festival. And they um, wanted to come and meditate with me. Mm -hmm. And so my seclusion was over. And it sort of one thing led to another, and I started teaching them mm -hmm. what I knew aside from the meditation. But I want to share with you about the um, uh, when I went to the woman to be hypnotized. Okay. I got this inner guidance. I'm surprised I, you could be hypnotized once you're in a state of nirvikalpa samadhi. That I, oh, I just but think you're so be. you're so um, you're so I guess open that it's very uh, easy flexible. and can surrender yeah. into it. All right. Well, so, I'll tell the story. Maybe. I don't know if this part was just made up. I don't think so. I mm -hmm. wouldn't be telling you if I really thought that. But I went to this woman and. Um, on you know the guidance um, to do it, and and I relived under hypnosis the whole experience that I had had during those three days. Mm. I see. Mm. So, so so I knew it what was it revealed happened. to you what was going on yes. during those three days. Yes. Right. yes. Can we know? Can, can we? It's tell kind us? of bizarre and amazing. Right. So um, after being lifted up, mm -hmm. which I guess was an, a sort of an etheric thing, I, nobody really lifted my body. No, right. Don't think my body left. People that would have couch. seen it on the couch if they peeked through your window or something. Probably. I, you know, I don't. You really know. don't know, but I probably. have no idea. I never went to the bathroom. I, I never regained consciousness yeah. for those three days. So, um, the first thing that came up in the hypnosis was that um, I found myself in what was like an operating room, you know, mm -hmm. with a big light above my head. Mm -hmm. And I got the, the sense that I was on a, um, a craft, a spacecraft. Right, I was going to ask you that question. Mm -hmm. so and there were beings around me that were very compassionate mm -hmm. and loving, but they were doing a kind of a surgery on mm -hmm. me. And they, well, I remember the one said to me, don't be worried, don't be afraid. Um, but we want you to know that you will never be the same again mm -hmm. after this. Okay, um, I just remember this huge light above my head, and that it was. It felt I've been in operating rooms before, so I, I could feel it had that kind of feeling, and there were a lot of tubes and pipes and things hanging from some kind of mechanism on the ceiling, mm -hmm. and they were hanging kind of above me and, and around me, and it had it was a sort of a cold metallic kind of white light in mm -hmm. the room that resembled an operating room. And then um, the scene changed and I was um, I was I, I was being held. A group of seven gigantic beings were all held their hands together. They were in a circle, mm -hmm. held their hands together and I was like a tiny little thumbelina mm. um, sitting in the palm of their hands. And they said to me, we are the Elohim. And each one of us, each one of the seven of us, contains the un a universe, mm -hmm. seven universes, seven Elohim. And they held me like this, like little Thumbelina, and they spoke to me. I don't really quite recall all of what they said to me. <coughs> but um, after a while, 
they uh, they all lifted their hand they oh they invited me to look inside each one of them and see the seven universes that mm -hmm. they contained <clears throat> and i remember doing that and finding the seven universes being totally different were they like um universes at different levels or were they more like each one a universe were, full of galaxies the, like we see in NASA because photos. Because they were in a circle mm. around me and I looked from one to the other yeah. around the circle, they were all on the same level. There right. was not a hierarchy there But at you say all. each one was totally different. Each one was totally different and I'm afraid that I cannot recall the details. It was as though I was looking at the structure of consciousness as it manifested its particular form of life inside each of those universes mm -hmm. and because I was doing that with my human orientation I couldn't retain because they were so different yeah different forms of um, of life so there. in other words it was so uh, alien to human intelligence that it's impossible to sort of recall it and express precisely. it in English language. Yes, precisely. Yeah. And that took a certain length of time. And the Elohim said to me, you are one of us. Huh. And, and Elohim um, is just a, a sort of a, a celestial well, being or something, right? I didn't really so know. That means? I, I, I didn't really know. But that's what they call themselves. Well, there are creator, creator beings, creator, uh -huh. angelic creator beings. I see. I've since learned, mm -hmm. but they seem to each, I don't know how many of them, I only saw those seven, right. and each one contained a universe. Now, you kind of segued from being in apparent, apparently in a spacecraft of some kind was a, to this like Elohim a, thing. Or just like a dissolution, just suddenly the scene. Two different scenes. The scene faded and then, and I then this, was, one this one started. Okay. Yes. Okay. And then the next thing that happened was um, they said some words to me which I can't recall, but then they all, they, they, they had me look up mm -hmm. and um, what I saw was something very much like uh, that scene from the movie Contact. Mm -hmm where she goes through the yeah. time warp and she sees that golden galaxy mm. with sort of golden light all around it and she uh, she looks at it mm -hmm. well I, I that was what this was before the movie contact right. was made even but that's what i saw mm. they held they all held their hands up like that and pointed me towards this mm -hmm. and i i um and actually held their hands so that their hands went right into the golden um energy around this um, spherical golden form and um I felt the energy of it, and whenever I watch that movie Contact, somebody you else have to has see that been again. there. It's been years since I saw. Somebody it. else has been there because that was exactly how yeah. I felt. You know, she goes, "Oh my God, it's so beautiful." Either that or the that, the, the intelligence um, of these beings channeled that channeled into the movie that, makers, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and gave them the vision to yes. do it. It was a saturation of love that I had never ever experienced before. Mm. And um, it was sort of, oh my God, you know, yeah. kind of feeling. And I saw um, there was a, a slight pull in my body to just go right into that light. And something held me back, and I realized that it wasn't my time to do that. In other words, you might have died if you'd gone into I it. I think I probably would have, that, uh -huh. that I came back because I still had yeah. to do things and uh -huh. live a life.
and and then um, I think that was the end. And then that you woke the up end. on the couch. Yes, I woke, <laughs> I woke up on the couch. Yeah. yeah. And you know, if it hadn't been for the newspapers, I would have had no sense of the passing of time at all. Right. Huh. And so then you um, began to get drawn out by people, teach me meditation. Yes. Yes. It's the knocking on do the this. door, and you know, yeah. saying, you know, come. They, I guess there was. I was luminous at that point. Just to look at you, you mean people would think, yeah. whoa. Yes. Yeah. And there was a force field around my body. Now, mm -hmm. I don't have that quite to the same extent. At least I don't think so. Well, it, may have just, <laughs> it may have just seemed that way yeah. then because it was so unusual. I'd never quite felt that way before. Mm. And now I've become accustomed to it, but I don't think so. I don't walk around. I don't have a huge golden aura around my body anymore. And I think that that's also evolutionary. Mm. And, and I've integrated. I've integrated it into what's more like clear light mm -hmm. um, state of consciousness than uh, that kind of um, radiant celestial. Yes, I, my understanding of that is that you, that's still egoic, somewhat egoic. It's ah. um, it's sort of a fourth dimensional heavens and hells. You're in the heavens when you're in that state. But it has a polar polar opposite. It's still yeah. some some of the hell worlds are polarities to it. Yeah. I meant to ask, um, as a result of this whole experience you had. Mm. Do you have any uh, comments or insights into the role that sort of extraterrestrial intelligences might be playing in this whole thing? I mean, you know, a lot of people feel that they have a spiritual um, orientation and that they're assisting the planet in its yes. spiritual evolution. Well, I, what is an extraterrestrial? We think they're like little space people, but you know, uh, <clears throat> the ascended masters are extraterrestrials. But they do seem that some of them at least seem to have physical craft that people see and yes. they come around and there's yes. crop circles and there's all this stuff going on yes. and you yes. wonder about um, you like to think that they are benign and, and uh, you know have our best interests in mind mm. and maybe some of them do I've some of them. I've never really been into yeah. spacecraft. I, I mean, I, other than going into one in that experience that yeah. where I went through that sort of psychic surgery, mm -hmm. that was definitely a spacecraft. But yeah. And I'd never had an experience like that before. I had another friend who had an experience like that. He was drawn up in a spacecraft and mm -hmm. he was shown these sort of instruments and everything and then he was shown how the, they're able to kind of monitor the mm -hmm. levels of consciousness of, of countries and mm -hmm. cities and individuals mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. sort of do things to kind of help everybody along. I'm quite certain that yeah. they do. I, you know, I've all I've come into a perception that I would describe now as um, that we are like test tube babies, the mm. human race, and that there the higher beings are just like training, cultivating, um, teaching, developing us. Mm. It was a vision I had at one mm. point. So um, there. They're right here. We are not alone. It, because we have a programming to mm -hmm. feel separate, that we perceive ourselves to be alone. Right. After the fall, humanity became um, locked into the egoic veils of separation. Yeah. Now, um, do you feel that these ben these beneficent beings that you've been, um, you know, guided by most of your life? 
have a negative counterpart that are trying to hurt people or lead people astray and that are in kind of competition with the with the good guys? Well, that's what I've heard. I mean, I've never run into in I've never run into any of them. But you know, my whole uh, perception of a reality was based on polarity, on the duality. One of the ways that I came into non-duality was by working with dualities. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine it's a question of whether there's still duality out there in space or if it's confined to planet Earth. Or if that that sort of outer space thing is just an extension of our reality. Hmm. So then there would be... Well, I'm not just talking about like UFO-type beings, but I'm talking about, you know, just as you have the archangels and, mm. and so on, the Elohim and, and beautiful beings. beings that you... Yeah, right. And whether all the, the, the a lot of the suffering and, and difficulties we see in the world are perhaps the handiwork of those more negative beings and that these mm -hmm. positive beings are in competition with them in a sense trying to through people like you and spiritual mm -hmm. people in general trying to kind of create enough spiritual energy to change the balance mm -hmm. I'm speculating mm -hmm. but I'm wondering whether from your experience you have more insight into that I think it's all part of our process in a way mm -hmm. the, the whole thing is like um, um, stage sets for our um, growth and development. Mm. I mean, it's, it may sound a bit sort of egocentric to think that we're so important, but I do think we are. Yeah. Um, I think it can be given an egotistical slant. I mean, people mm. have said, oh, human beings are so important, we can just rape the planet, you know, and take all the resources we want because we're we're the top of the heap. But mm. that's not the mm. sense in which you we mean it. We aren't the top of the heap at all. Mm. Um, the thing that I'm getting on this um, is that we're, we're the babies, mm. and so we're being nurtured. And it's, um, the process itself is about undoing the fall, hmm. undoing the state of separation that humans believe they're living in right now, mm -hmm. that there is no separation. Right. Um, but we do have these veils around us, illusory veils of separation, that um, are there as part of our evolution in this patriarchal age. Hmm. I don't think we've always had those veils. I'm, in the previous age, there weren't those veils of separation. But hmm. this, is a, this is a cultivating of a whole um, race of beings um, in an evolutionary cycle. Hmm. Um, it's very carefully orchestrated. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. There's nothing random about anything that happens. And it's just the human state of separation that perceives the randomness. Yeah. Because oh, our right. separation is, our sense of separation is feeling, allows us to feel cut off from things yeah. and disconnected mm -hmm. from things. And it's an illusion. Yeah. There's nothing random and there's no such thing as separation. And so that's what we wake up to. Mm -hmm. We wake up to the unity of everything. And that's what we're being taught. My experience with my guides was that they gave everything, all their time and energy and absolute meticulous attention to detail in mm. the way they worked with me. Yeah. There was nothing shoddy or slipshod or, you know, part-time about it at Very all. Very serious work. 
a very serious work, yeah. yes. The evolution of the human race we're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. And uh, as you were saying that, I was kind of picturing a leaf falling from a tree and thinking, you know, every little tiny thing like that is perfect, uh, you know, perfectly integrated into the whole divine mm -hmm. plan, uh, the whole divine play. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. No, nothing goes on. There's nothing that's. I mean, if you think about it, everybody says, "Oh, yeah, God is omniscient." Well, if God is omniscient, you know, nobody really knows what that means. But yeah, but if you think about what it means, it means that every little housefly and every little particle of of everything is permeated by divine intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, so how can anything be random mm -hmm. no. or arbitrary? And and of course we don't see it that way. So that's our learning curve. Right. Is to come to that. Mm. And. Um, you know, we, time is not an issue. We've got, all we've got all the time in the cosmos yeah. to be able to make the journey. And some people are further along, and some, it's like a one-room schoolroom where some people are just beginning and mm -hmm. others are very developed. But we learn through our experience of being cut off from that divine light, from the separation mm -hmm. that we live in. And so. Um, as I said, I think we're like test tube babies. Yeah. There's a T.S. Eliot line about somehow, uh, I forget how it goes exactly, but somehow coming, coming back home to where, we, from, to where we started from and discovering the place for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. somehow it seems like the whole cycle of going out into diversity is, is mm -hmm. necessary to forge a greater wholeness. Mm -hmm. um, well, we have when we when we're in that state of separation mm -hmm. and we're we're trying different diversities. Um, each one is calibrated to teach us a set of lessons. Yeah. So each soul comes in with a slightly different configuration. Each life, they mm -hmm. choose a little different configuration. They're not into wholeness yet. They have to have that specialized configuration in order to have a certain set of experiences. Right. And when they've had those experiences and they're done, the next life they'll come in with another mm -hmm. configuration. Another lesson, set and of it's, lessons. You, you can't really learn lessons except by separating things out. Mm -hmm. Because eventually when there's no separation, everything, the wholeness is there and there's nothing further to learn. Right. So we are learning through our state of separation and yeah. that's very, very profound actually. And you know, you referred to it as a fall, but that, and that sort of has a negative connotation, but well, really without having... <laughs> pardon? It's an illusion that right. there was a fall. Yeah. And it, w it wasn't an accident. And we right. treat it like a disaster. Yeah. That's why I called it the fall. People's egos feel very ashamed and broken by that separation. Mm. If they ever dig deep enough to see that's the cause of their pain, that's what they'll see. Mm. The loss of that divine connection is the most painful thing we can experience. Mm. So when that's uh, healed, we are... Um, we're whole again, and right. that's the whole journey through this earthly system. Yeah. And if the loss is the most painful thing we can experience, then, then the restoration must be the most sublime thing we can experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But most souls, you know, they start looking for that reconnection in personal relationships right. or having a lot of money mm -hmm. to assuage the pain of the emptiness inside. And of course, um, 
doesn't do it for doesn't him. Doesn't do it. So and how many lives do you have to have before you realize it's not going to do it for you? Yeah. You want the real thing. Mm -hmm. But you have to realize that that's the missing piece first. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how Coca-Cola picked up on that slogan, the real thing, you know. <laughs> um, somebody intuitive at the, in the Coke company. Did you feel that these, uh, the beings that have been guiding you are multitasking? In other words, Archangel Michael and so on, he's not just focusing on Leslie, he must have a lot of clients, so to speak, that he's well, working they're, with. Well, they're not singular beings, you know, they're like, but I've experienced my own multiple bodies mm -hmm. in the work that I seem to do at night with people. You uh -huh. know? I don't, I can't remember all of them. The memory cannot. In other words, while you're sleeping, you're out I've, doing something. I've got many bodies that are out doing things simultaneously, uh -huh. and you know, Archangel Michael is like a um, everywhere at once being. You know. Right. Omniscient or Omniscient. To, to a degree or whatever. Yeah. Yes. So in other words, he might be working with everyone on the planet or a certain set of people mm -hmm. on the planet simultaneously mm -hmm. with the same care and attention that he gave you. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. And this sort of singularity that we live in in our little bodies is, mm -hmm. is what we think to be reality. Right. It's not at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, before we started taping, you and I were talking about the political scene and what you know what we each thought of that, and mm. whether we were optimistic or pessimistic or whatever. Um, do you feel? I mean, you said earlier that you feel like there's a kind of a divine plan. I'm not sure if that's the word you use, but that there's a uh, kind of a, a destiny or a, whatever words you you were saying that, that that everything we're being shepherded along in this by this sort of loving uh, intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't that kind of um, make you optimistic, despite all the, the apparent tragedies and difficulties in, in the world, oh, that no. somehow we're going to prevail? Well, I have moments when I think it, and I think the, the moments that I was about to describe are based on my perception that suddenly, you know, we're gaining ground, mm -hmm. and then something comes along and suddenly, you know, we're not gaining ground anymore. So I fluctuate. I wouldn't even call it pessimism and optimism. Mm -hmm. I think it's a clear perception day to day of the actual fluctuations of whether we are approaching a critical mass. And I think that there are um, people so that are so deluded about everything that they... Um, that they're sort of messing up, you know, and they're messing up for themselves the, and other people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the environment and the, yes. the way animals are treated and well, the way people are treated. Look at what's and just happening all in this country, and mm -hmm. I think it's happening in other Western countries too. Um, Einstein said that if you keep doing the same thing, in a hope of getting a different result, that that's a kind of insanity. Right. Well, I think that's what's happening. There are people who are trying to do the same old, same old, but at a much stronger, more vigorous level in mm. the hopes of getting a different outcome. Mm. And to me, what that looks like is that they're, they're verging on insanity. Mm. They are deluding themselves, and that, you know, that could crash the whole thing. Mm. So people have to change and you know that's the hardest thing for the average person to do mm. because you have to go through 
a process of reorganizing the egoic structure of the personality in order to change. We can use our wills to change a little bit, but often we just slide back again because the will is just a human will, which is a polarized, dualistic will, and so it doesn't have complete control over mm. everything. And um, only when we come into a state of oneness can our wills really create real change. And um, you have to be willing to change to get to the oneness. It's kind of a double bind. So let's say somebody's listening to this and they think, well, that sounds great. I want to do it. What do I do? The first thing you do is make a statement to the universe, because everybody's listening anyway. Mm -hmm. You ignore the fact that you feel alone and separate, and you make a big, bold statement to the universe, to the, more or less, the way you just said. Mm -hmm. I really want to do this. Um, I'm, I'm signing up. And you really have to mean it, because when the guides do show up and say, okay, well, we want you to change your life in this and this and this direction, you can't suddenly say, well, mm, no, I don't think I can do that. Yeah. And then the, the, the agreement is off at that point. You have to be able to let them guide you. And show so would you, you recommend that people go out to a mountainside or sit in their meditation room or something and actually make a, an audible statement of intention? That yes. This is what I want? With, but you have to With really sincerity. want it. Yes, yeah. you have to really want it. Mm -hmm. If you really, really want it and you make a sincere statement and you say something like, I'll do anything, mm -hmm. I'll do anything that's necessary to end my state of separation, to transcend my ego, to come into whatever you, unity consciousness, mm -hmm. whatever you think you need to do. Do you think it would be wise to put in the proviso that I will do this as in a way that doesn't hurt other people, you know, that doesn't sort of break someone's heart or leave someone abandoned? Or... I, well, I, I, I suppose you could. Because hmm. um... some people get kind of selfish about spiritual advancement, you know, they'll, they'll you know, trample mm. over in mm. order to you know, get ahead or something. Well, that's just ego yeah. doing its usual ambition thing. Right. It's not really quite surrender. We're talking about a real surrender mm. to um, the unknown. Not, okay, now my ego's going to start running the spiritual journey the way it's orchestrated my business or you yeah. know, my life or my marriage or whatever. It's, I'm here with absolutely no plan at all, except I know that I need to offer myself um, to this work because it's the only thing that's going to shift the global consciousness mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, not I wish to be a high and mighty enlightened yeah. person. I think there has to be an altruistic genuineness Relation. to that surrender mm -hmm. where you're really saying, I don't know how to solve the world's problems, but I would like to try, mm. and I'm asking higher intelligence to show me the way. Mm. Um, I think one has to have altruistic mode, um, intentions to become enlightened. I don't think you can say, well, I'd like to be enlightened. Um, and because I think what will happen is that the ego will short-circuit the process at some point. Yeah, and if we think about what enlightenment means, I mean, by definition, it's sort of not a, it's not a self-aggrandizement. It's not like well, me, that's me, the, me, me, that's I'm going to be great, you know. Yeah. It's more of a, you know, a merging with yeah. something much vaster than our individuality. 
but that's what people don't get. Mm. You know, they think it's going to make them, I don't know, more powerful, Super perhaps, guru. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because I know the projections that I get from people, students, you know, uh-huh. people who sit with me, is that I, um, I'm something special. Mm-hmm. That I am, um, and that I know it. You know that, right. I, and that, and their projection of the superior makes themselves inferior and so yeah. then we have a hierarchical projection that's really uncomfortable for me and then because they're thinking, I don't, maybe i could become something special too and then yes, i'll have people sitting exactly, at my feet exactly <laughs> exactly so i um i you know i i see things with very equal eyes i yeah. when because i just see god in everything and there's only oneness there mm. so these um egoic perceptions of being special are really uncomfortable to me. Mm. I just wish I could somehow, I mean I can talk about it and I do, I try to explain it, but in, until, the, um, until the ego is dissolved to a huge extent, there's still that whole um, superior inferior Mentality. perception yeah. in the ego. And you, it, they think I'm being, you know, putting myself on a pedestal mm-hmm. um, and I'm just trying to help them see there are no pedestals you know yeah. and um, th- th- what people don't realize is that it's coming from inside it's a, a programmed or conditioned perception of superior and inferior mm-hmm. and we do that with all of society it's a human perception that comes from inside and then um, we tend to think that, oh, that person thinks they're superior, but actually we're making them superior <laughs> with our projection. Yeah. And um, only when you come into the oneness and you transcend the duality can you see that it's all God and there are no separations and there's mm. no high-low. Somebody sent me an email about this the other day after listening to one of the interviews. They said, you know, why are you always quoting... Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta or all mm-hmm. these people, aren't you sort of putting them on a pedestal and, you know, can't you just quote yourself or whatever? And my attitude is that it's, it's one of these paradox things where, you know, on the one hand I feel like there are people who are vastly more advanced than I am mm-hmm. and I, I, I look up to them and I respect them and I admire them and I'll quote them and, you know, I'm not taking what they say as some kind of gospel truth cut in stone that I need to sort of believe in or else I'm going to hell or something, but you know, the, a lot of people have the ability to express it much better than I do, and uh, you know, they're much more eloquent, and, and they can sit sit for an hour and give a beautiful lecture mm-hmm. that I wouldn't be capable of giving, and mm-hmm. I, I love listening to them, and so on. So there's no harm. I mean, on the other hand, I realize that essentially we're all the same, and we're all one, and I don't know. So somehow these two things uh, seem to fit together okay for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can have respect and admiration and even devotion for someone, mm-hmm. and at the same time, feel a kind of a camaraderie. You know, it's probably because you don't feel very broken inside yourself. <laughs> um, people who are more broken by yeah. their upbringing, their childhood, and uh-huh. so uh, are more polarized in that way. I've been there. They feel you know. Okay. I mean, I had an alcoholic years father of, and okay. a mother in a mental institution. I was very years of meditation yeah, have yeah. evened you out. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've gone. I've gone through all sorts of fanatical phases. And, you know. I wish that everyone in the world was um, willing 
to look at their egoic constructs mm. from a witnessing place where they can say, this is just my, uh, my, my garment for this lifetime. It's not who I am. I'm not the ego. Yeah. That I am um, I'm divine presence taking in a human life and living in a polarized ego in order to learn lessons, mm -hmm. but I'm not the ego and I'm not, um, I'm not the dualistic nature that I'm expressing here. Yeah. It takes a while to see that. I mean, you know, someone hearing these words isn't necessarily going to be able to snap their fingers and just mm -hmm. see it that way. You mm -hmm. know, it, it, there's a maturation process. I think. I mean, getting back to our person who has gone into their meditation room and, and proclaimed their their intention to be enlightened, uh, you know, for the good of the world, mm. uh, then, you know, they might then think, well, what next? Now what do I do? You know, I've had this intention. And, it, I mean, do you sort of feel confident that something's going to show up for them pretty quick after after expressing that intention or, or you know, do some well, people fumble I, around for a while? No, I really do think something does show up. Mm -hmm. But um, they might be too scattered to catch it when it comes, yeah. and, and they miss the opportunity to grab a hold of it. Um, they're preoccupied. They're they they're too too into being in control. That's mm -hmm. a big one. I mean, this is my life, and I'm in control of it. I'm going to do it the way I want. Yeah. And enlightenment's a nice idea, but really, I have to learn lessons yeah. about. Um, life through being a controller. So it can take a while to thing. dismantle all that stuff. Yes. I, I was gung-ho already, but the, the, the four years that I spent with uh, the Jungian therapist were so profound in that I really saw the games that the ego plays about power and so on. Mm. Power, mm. fulfillment, you know, need and desire and all that sort of thing. I just, and I really began to see that I had them all, yeah. and that they weren't really who I was. That came through so clearly, and that was a quantum leap forward. So incredibly freeing, really, mm. to have that experience. Mm. Um, I would recommend everyone get a really good Jungian therapist. Yeah. Is this woman still practicing? No, I think yeah. she's in her 80s yeah. at this point. Huh. But. Um, getting to know your ego. Hmm. You know, everyone goes, oh, I want the light, I want, you know, I want the transcendence, it's so beautiful. Yeah. They have a taste of it, maybe. And the real change takes place when you grapple with your ego. It makes all the difference, yeah. because you, you then see, this is a whole fabricated personality. Mm -hmm. It's not who <clears throat> I am. And um, plus, you can catch yourself when you start doing behaviors yeah. that are um, part of the ego. You go, oh, whoops, there's my little power-hungry side <laughs> yeah. diving in here and wreaking havoc, you know. And so you, you stop doing it. Yeah. You drop it. You drop it. And you have to drop both sides of the polarity. You have to drop the negative and the positive. And that's where people get trapped. They want to keep the positive mm. side and drop the negative side. But because you're moving from duality into non-duality, you have to be willing to drop the, the positive side as well. 
the positive side of the particular program behavior that yeah. you're doing. And then the liberation comes so fast, it's truly amazing. And dropping positive and negative doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a lukewarm blob that has no emotions. No, you're becoming or... a transcendent being. Yeah, yeah. You're becoming your real self. Right. You're, you're actually completing the whole ego journey for the life. Because some people, um, you know, have this notion of dropping the ego or losing the ego or dissolving the ego as being a, a sort of a, a loss of something beautiful and unique and individual, and that the, the, the ego is some divine expression of God which is meant to exist, and that by destroying it, you become kind of zombie-like or, or feelingless or, you know, lukewarm, neutral kind of, you know, personalityless. Entity. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps you could elaborate on, on that notion. It certainly has been my experience. Right. I find um, I have a I have a range of emotions and um, and thoughts and capacities that are like quadrupled from what I had when I was in the ego. The ego is a limitation. You still have human qualities, yeah. but you have a much wider vocabulary of potentials available to you. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like your humanness goes away. As long as I have a human body, I'm going to live a human life. Yeah. But I mean, if I'm, someone says, Leslie, you... you you Absolutely. turn your head, you know, you don't answer the phone and say, this is nobody. <laughs> oh, but I know the truth of who I am is mm -hmm. nobody in particular. Mm. And that in particular is kind of the, the key piece there because I can access a very wide range of human um, thoughts, feelings, emotions, capacities, um, very empathetic, very um, aware. I can feel where people are at. I can, I'm very sensitive to their suffering and so mm -hmm. on. And so I feel like I'm a sort of a superhuman, really. I mm. hesitate to use the term yeah. because it has sort of connotations right. of Superman, but. Um, and it's not that at all. Well, what, it's you, just you, what that person, have... the connotation might be is, hey, I'm special, yeah. superhuman. Yeah. But what you're saying is, by virtue of having dissolved that kind of thinking. I just have access. Yeah. There's a whole lot more available to me. Mm. You know, it's like Christmas time. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like there's sort of strata to your life? And on one level, you're still Leslie Temple Thurston with your own personality and, and likes and dislikes and tastes mm -hmm. and whatnot. And then as we go through the strata, we're moving toward the universal. You know, there's this broad level, a, a vast, infinite level at which you're not Leslie Temple Thurston. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Some you're a universal not, spirit. Yes. <laughs> and, and But all these levels sort of. Mm -hmm. Fit, they live together compatibly uh, in order they to function do. as a human being. They do, yes. and, and maybe our attention sort of moves up and down the strata according to the circumstances and the mm -hmm. needs. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that sound I right? I think so, yes. I mean, I, I identify, I never changed my name. That was very clear from my guides that I mm -hmm. wasn't to do that. Yeah. That I was to present um, the awakened state with as a very human ordinary kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I was never guided to change my name or um, to, you know, try to live in an isolated ashram or mm -hmm. anything like that. I mean, live here in the middle of suburban, middle-class Santa Fe. I wouldn't exactly and, call it middle-class, uh, but <laughs> it's, maybe it is for Santa Fe. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, Shirley Mc, 
Shirley MacLaine or whatever, and up in the hills living mm. in that. No, that's definitely um, different status. Yeah. Um, I think Spirit had gifted us with this house, which mm -hmm. sort of what is what happened, mm. um, so that I could have space around my body because yeah. I'm hyper hypersensitive, uh -huh. and so um, you know, going into the marketplace can like airports and that uh -huh. can really kind of um, makes me contract a bit. Uh -huh. But um, no, I'm living a fully human life. Yeah. I'm enjoying it to the hill. It's very creative. I've always been creative, mm -hmm. and I just love. I you know use my creativity in ways of helping people and writing and um, developing new theories and so mm -hmm. on. And um, rather than making paintings nowadays. But yeah, people are your canvas. Mm-hmm. In a way, yes. Yeah. If they let me be, sure, mm. and some <clears throat> do, yeah, and um, I, life and the world seems very beautiful. I'm very concerned about the mentality of a certain group of people in this country. Mm -hmm. I think that they are doing that um, for, um, that Einsteinian thing of mm, um, yeah. choosing to do the wrong thing right. in the wrong way at the wrong time. It seems like they're um, they're going to hit a dead end, mm -hmm. and um, my concern is that they're going to hurt a lot of people along the way. Yeah, and um, a lot of people are being hurt now. Yes, and animals and the environment and all I kinds of things. So, yeah. Yes, huh. it's uh, it's hard. I'm very sensitive, and so yeah. I mean I can weep for the suffering. Mm. Um, I try not to be mm. too dramatic. gushy about it, but it does hurt me a lot. Yeah. So, I, I don't know, I, I just have had a very wonderful, it's been 20 years, or actually it's 22 years. Since the Nervi Kalpa shift? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. So it's really Nervi now, mm -hmm. I mean, by meaning non-break, mm -hmm. there has been no um, overshadowing or interruption or anything? No. Um, during Not sleep really. also, I mean, are you, is pure awareness there during your sleep? Um, I, I, for part of the sleep. Part yes. of the sleep, yeah. Um, I go into a deep sleep where mm -hmm. there seems to be no sense of anything mm -hmm. at the beginning of the night and then I'm conscious for the rest of the night. Yeah. And we've been working so hard that um, we've been trying to get more so restful rest. sleep. Working hard with court students and yes. retreats and uh, things like and that. projects galore. Uh -huh. Um, in terms of this humanitarian yes, stuff we mentioned in the beginning. It's all activism yeah. kind of project. Are you able to do it remotely from here, or do you have to go to Africa to do it? Oh, we, we have projects here as well, oh. so we do, we're doing both. I, my role is more energetic, uh -huh. although when we're in Africa it's more hands-on yeah. than it is here. But I am definitely doing an energetic piece of work for the world. I'm very conscious of it. It's, Elaborate uh, on what you mean by that, just a little bit. Well, it's really hard to I think talk I know what you mean, it. but I'd like you to try to. Yes. I, I, I have a method of processing. So if I, see, um, if I see a group of citizens or a country, um, 
they're all acting out egoic stuff. So whether it's a group of people doing egoic stuff or an individual or a whole country, it doesn't make any difference. I can process that internally mm. because everything is part of me. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, As if you sort of digest it or something. Yes. And, and help, help to kind of neutralize it or yes. align it, mm. it recalibrate. Mm. Yeah. But um, I get quite toxic, when I, physically toxic mm. when I do that. And so there's a limit to how much I can... And then you have to regenerate yourself to detox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it takes a few days for the toxicity to move through the body. Yeah. And, and sometimes I'm, you know, quite down mm -hmm. with it and um, try to keep going because I don't have time to, yeah. to rest. Well, you know, perhaps that's the main role you've been cultured for. Because, I mean, it's a big world out there, seven billion plus people, mm -hmm. and there's only so many people you can interact with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. by working on this more subtle energetic mm -hmm. level, you're able to have a much bigger impact yes. than if you tried to just do it all on a kind of a one-to-one. -one. That is what's happening. Yeah. That's my, and that's increasing, I did, especially at night. I do most of it at night. But During sleep. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Semi-sleep, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, but if I'm in the middle of something, it'll stretch out over a few days. Do you mean if you're going through a process of, yes, of realigning something, yes. it might take several days to yes. do? Yes. Yeah. And are you usually aware specifically of what it is you're, you're realigning? Like, you know, oh, okay, I'm working on this situation in Czech Republic or mm -hmm. <laughs> something like that? Not always, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I would have to... Um, it comes in at a very impersonal level, and I do it as though it was part of myself. So unless I happen to open the newspaper or uh, my guidance actually says, you know, this is what's happening, like the thing that I shared with you earlier, right, right. that, um, you know, is a little bit of a dangerous signal. So they're yeah. alerting me to that. So in other words, it's almost like you get assigned little projects. Mm. It's a, Hey Leslie, we've got one for you. We need this. Mm -hmm. We need somebody to work on this. Would you please <laughs> take it on? Mm -hmm. And then yes. you do it. Yes. Yeah. That's. Um, and I don't know if that's true for all people who are teachers or whatever. It's what you remember. That was my premise at the very beginning. I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. To help the world, and so that's what I've been given. I think it's different for other teachers. I think so. If they're making different choices. And if there's constituted differently. I mean, we all mm. have different nervous systems mm. and different dharmas and different mm. sort of functions. Mm. You know, an orchestra is composed of a lot of different instruments yes. and the flute can't play all the parts. Absolutely. <laughs> so not every every teacher is there to, to do the same job. Yeah. Mm. And some of them have big mass followings like Amma, you mm. know, and they're, she sits there for hugging people for 24 hours. Mm. And, and others are just, you know, you might not even know about them. I mean, mm. there might be people that don't have any students or anything. And they're no, just, they are, definitely. They're just up in the mountains someplace oh, yeah. or something Absolutely. and doing this processing mm. thing that you do. Mm. Huh. Yes, I'm sure that's true. But on a um, mundane practical level, if, if somebody wants to actually get involved with you and be taught by you or work with you or help you with your humanitarian things and all, um, you have ways for them to do that. Yes. Obviously, yes. right. Yeah. And there's a website, corelight.org, mm -hmm. which we'll be linking to, and you have an email newsletter, and I'm sure that you can use donations for these humanitarian projects mm -hmm. and helping the Oh yes, we're always always raising funds and seeking donations yeah. for the projects because mm -hmm. the work that we do with the students doesn't cover that kind of stuff. Right. 
So that's why we're a non-profit. And, yeah. um, and really, the, uh, this, the, the teaching work just covers um, our staff, office, and household expenses. Because yeah. we've always kept our prices really low. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to exclude anybody. Mm -hmm. So the work with the elephants and the lions and the AIDS orphans and so on is all funded by mm -hmm. funders. Does it say on your website, you know, what you're actually doing for the lions and so on, so that if somebody wanted to make a donation they could understand mm -hmm. how their money was going to be applied? Uh, pretty much, yes. Okay. We've just been building a new website. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're referring to. Oh, okay. And so some of those pieces aren't complete. The AIDS Orphans website, which is linked to ours, mm -hmm. is under construction for a new one. We all needed a new website. Yeah. A bit overdue, actually. Okay. So that's uh, that's under construction. The, I think the old one is still there, but corelight.org. No, the oh, seeds, of light, it's oh, seeds of light. Oh, seeds of light. Okay. Is corelight the new one? No, corelight is the parent organization that does the spiritual okay. teaching. We are a five hundred one c three organization. Seeds of light is the name we gave to our African adventure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our African activism. Well, we'll link to all these things on the, be on the site, and mm. people can come. And so, if if somebody wants to study with you as a spiritual student, they don't they don't have to come to Santa Fe, or do they? No, no, we're doing everything on the um, on um, the internet on phone bridges and. Uh -huh, so you give like conference calls. Yes. And, yeah. We, um, the students are, we recently restructured everything because it was definitely called for. So um, we run a teacher training program mm -hmm. and the teacher training students formed into small circles where they get together on conference call and they process with each other yeah. uh, once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. So that's something that happens without me having to be too involved. Yeah, in it. and then they teach others how to meditate or whatever the, they teach there are, It's a four-year, the teacher training course is a four-year course oh. and each of the classes has their own teacher. Mm -hmm. These are students from long ago that graduated and I trust them and I yeah. know they're capable. So they work as the teachers. So um, I will work with very advanced students. Mm -hmm. um, we have an annual teacher training conference and I, um, I, I run that. And um, we've just changed our MO over and over again over the years as people became more advanced and we, um, we, we felt that the format needed to recognize the advancement and recognize people's skills and so on. And, and now every, everything we, we've, we've arranged everything so that we get the most amount of talk <laughs> out of the time available yeah. so that people are moving forward and um, and there are public we do public f uh, phone conferences mm -hmm. where uh, Brad and I just ran a, a one um, it's actually still underway. It was, I think, six classes every mm. two weeks on a Sunday afternoon on a conference call. And we've been looking at the, um, each week it's a different subject, like the environment, the, the situation with water, the financial potential, mm -hmm. what's wrong with the financial right. world right now, and um, the ecology. Um, 
and you sort of tie it all back to a spiritual dimension yes. and, and as, yes. as opposed to the fragmented approaches that you can read in college if you we're, want to. Uh, we're, we're in the business of shifting consciousness. Right, so right. we're connecting people's shifts to the global changes. So you're kind of identifying how the financial situation or environmental situation mm -hmm. or all ties back to consciousness mm -hmm. and by mm -hmm. how changing consciousness we can infuse more life into those things. Yes. Yeah. Changing consciousness, right. that's what we're doing. But often what we saw happening is that people who change consciousness will isolate themselves into a bubble. And become where, disinterested in all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And now, yeah. more than ever, we have to see the mirror that the world is presenting us yeah. of our own limitations. <laughs> Very good. Well, speaking of limitations, um, there's only so much capacity on this little <laughs> thing that we're recording this with, and we've just about reached our three-minute limit. Three minute so uh, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion in, in our remaining um, few minutes? That... Oh, gosh. All I can say is that um, discovering your heart and 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 becoming empathetic and living in love mm -hmm. and showering that love in every direction, every opportunity you can possibly get um, is really what's called for right now. Mm. And learning how to be unselfish and um, caring about others. Because in this patriarchal era and in the Western world, we live so in our individuality. Mm. We've forgotten how to be a community. We don't know how to relate to each other. And that's going to be our downfall. The isolation of that individualistic state is where it's just me, me, mine, and I'm, you know, living for my own whatever, maybe including my small nuclear family in the equation, but that's not how we're supposed to live. That's not how we're going to survive. Yeah. You build a fort by accumulating a fortune, and, you know, something will happen where your fort is going to be your jail. Mm. And um, we need each other. We need to love each other. We need to respect each other. That's really my message. Good. Well, this has been really delightful, uh, even more so than <laughs> I thought it would be, and I thought it was going to be pretty delightful. So, oh, it's, it's wonderful I, I to really spend this time with oh, you. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll conclude because we've reached about the end of our memory capacity here. But um, you've been listening to an interview with Leslie Temple Thurston on Buddha at the Gas Pump, uh, one of a ongoing series of interviews with people who have had a spiritual awakening. And um, I hope you have enjoyed it. If you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump, you'll see all the interviews that we've been doing and will continue to do. And then there's a little thing you can sign up for to be notified of new ones. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next week.